just taking all of you in for a minute. Because I'm going to need your help this morning wrestling with a quote that's been lodged in my heart, in my brain for a while. I came across this quote earlier this summer, and I did some journaling on it, and it's just been with me. It's just one of those things that's sort of irritating me because it's true, and I think um, together we can land in this place and maybe, and maybe unpack it a little bit. So let me um, share this quote with you. It's from Thomas Merton, who is a... Um, He's now deceased, but he was a Catholic writer. He was a mystic. He was a poet. He was a convener of interfaith dialogue. He did work with the Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh, really a deep religious thinker, wrote a whole bunch of books about social justice and spirituality and pacifism. And here's the quote that caught my eye. The whole mechanism of life, the whole mechanism of modern life, is geared for a flight from God. The whole mechanism of modern life is geared for a flight from God. Now, don't, don't leave the bus just because the word God doesn't work for you. Imagine the whole mechanism of modern life is geared for a flight from that which matters most, from the essence of things, from the heartbeat of life, from the the love at the center of things. The whole mechanism of modern life is geared for a flight away from that which matters most. Call it God. Call it what you will. That quote is just in me. It resonates with me. It feels true. It feels like there's something there because when I examine my life, when I look at my life and my habits and the way I am, and when I talk with so many of you after the service or during the week or whenever it might be, I I see my life, I hear your lives, and what I see in our modern living, our postmodern living, is incredible hecticness. Incredible hecticness imposed by jobs, sometimes working two or three or frantically trying to find work. Hecticness and busyness imposed by families and raising children and going from event to event or lesson to lesson and pickups and meal plannings and bedtimes and all of this stuff that's part of life, but it's this relentless wheel of busyness. Hecticness imposed by the flood of information, the fire hose, the river of information that is at our fingertips 24-7 and we're just drowning in information. We keep going back to try to make sense of this information. We have enough information. We need to find transformation. We need to find something that can hold and ground us. We keep going back to the stream of more information because it's there 24-7. There's hecticness because the email inbox, right, and the tweets and the Facebook updates, they're never done. There's always another update or a tweet or an email that lands in your inbox and pulls on you. Hurry, respond. This is urgent, really important. Please respond. <laughs> right? Or your phone jingles and beeps at you and like same thing. Hecticness because of this accelerating pace of technology. It's more and more and faster and faster and right in front of us. Hecticness because of this huge cloud of white noise. Just stuff. Noise, politicians, people, stuff, newspaper, internet, just background white noise that floods our hearts and our lives and our world. 
All of that. All of that, says Thomas Merton. All of that is geared to have us move away from God, from that which matters most. In other words, in other words, as author Scott Russell Sanders says, all of this, all of this noise and technology and busyness and sign-ups and drop-offs and all this stuff, all of the movement, all of this keeps us from that inward stillness where meaning is to be found. Scott Russell Sanders, this author that I love, asks in that context, how can we grasp the nature of things? How can we lead gathered lives if we are forever dashing about like water striders on a creek? You've seen water striders, right? They, they balance on top of the water. The tension, the surface tension on the water allows them to stand, these little insects, and they just... Like, that's what they do all the time. They're just moving like that. You've seen them, right? Like, they're not still. Like, if they're still, it's because they're about to go grab something or do something. Like, they're still for a half a second. So Scott Russell Sanders says, how can we grasp the nature of things? How can we lead gathered lives if we are forever dashing about like water striders on the moving surface of a creek? Modern life says it's all really Urgent. I need your attention right now. It matters right now. Please respond. Go do. That's one of the messages, I think. I feel it. You tell me you feel it in our lives. Now, to be fair, some of life is just busyness and hecticness, right? <laughs> That's just true. If you're, if you're parenting, if you're in transition, some of it is just busyness and hecticness. That is true. But so often, that busyness and hecticness in our lives becomes a way of being. And it can cover over our grief or our sadness or some journey that the spirit is on, that the soul is on. Because that busyness is all that we know, there's a comfort in it. And so we propel ourselves forward without tending to that inner life. As a colleague of mine has said we often, we so often have a feeling or hunger. We have a hunger for a deeper inner life and a more profound experience of the world that we share. We hunger for that. And we're haunted, he writes. We're haunted by the specter of our own superficiality. The uneasy feeling that life is sliding by and leaving no deep mark on us that we're being cheated of some version of real experience that would add marrow to the dry bones of our daily routine. He concludes by saying this, we've found ways of dealing with this hunger. We've found ways of masking this hunger, this hunger for something more, for something real. We, we, we can cover that and mask that, he says, but it has a curious persistence. I know this in my own life. I know this because you share this with me, that we sense there's something missing often from our lives, but we don't know how to slow down or we don't slow down, and so we keep that motion forward, that, that being propelled into the next thing, and that 
sort of life, friends, as you know, some of you intimately know, can lead to addiction, to a sexual addiction or a drug addiction or an alcohol addiction, something that helps numb down or push back the feelings that are just on the edge, that if you slowed down enough, they might really surface and blossom, and it would be a mess, but there would also be a sense of uncovering what's really important in your life. Another thing that can happen in that flight away from God, from what matters most, is this game we can play, and I have played this before. I think we all have this game that goes like this. You know, if, if A, B, and C, if these things, then these things. So here's how that game works in hypothetical ways, right? When, when and if these things happen. So when I get a new job or get a promotion or, uh, you know, get this raise to be paid at this level, then I'll slow down. I'll have time for my family and friends. I'll have time to tend to my inner life. And so often the new job, the raise, whatever it is, comes along and we're like, whoa, I'm not slowing down. I don't have more time. What? What happened? Or, or another way this can happen is if I had uh, something new in my life, like a, a whatever, name your thing, new clothes, new, new car, a used car, a new phone, a piece of technology, the iPhone 5. <laughs> <laughs> then, if that thing was in my life, then I could, then I would be happy and I could, I would slow, I could slow down a little bit and, and um, tend to my inner, inner life. Or another way this can take shape, and this is, this is, the, it's, it's simple and it's dangerous in its, complicate, in its implications. It's, it's when we are with a partner or a spouse and we say, man, if, um, if you would just fill in the blank here, if you would just, you're talking to your partner or spouse, if you would just fill in the blank, like love me a little bit differently or just change kind of who you are in these ways, <laughs> we say these things, we think these things. If you would just be a little bit different and love me differently and not talk to me about those things and do these things, then, like, never mind who you are as, a, as your partner. Like, never mind who they're called to be or what they might think about you. But we get into this game where we say, man, if you would just be a little bit different, then we would be happy. I would be happy. Things would be, things would be good in this relationship. There would be some deep uh, joy and, and happiness here. If and when these things happen, then these things. I don't know about you, but that's not often how my life works. It's a very fleeting moment of happiness. There's a different kind of practice and discipline that's required. Because so much of our lives are wrapped up in the busyness, in the striving, in the reaching, in the grasping, in the, the next thing that will make me happy. It is hard sometimes to understand the nature of things, how we can lead gathered lives, how we can touch that place of inward stillness. And so we come here to church often with a kind of hunger. We want to know how do we connect with our soul? How do we grow our soul even when there is such franticness in our lives so much grasping. Because underneath all of that, there is something alive in us, hungry, and we feel it. Author Parker Palmer says it like this, speaking of the soul. He says the soul, and I'll say a word about the soul in a minute here. He says the soul is like a wild animal. It is shy 
and it is resilient, and it is savvy, and it is self-sufficient, but like a wild animal, it will often hide in the underbrush. And we know, those of us that are hunters or those of us that spend a lot of time outside, if you want to come across a wild animal, you don't just kind of go tromping through the woods really loud with your technology going off and, you know, incoming phone calls and yelling and all that stuff. No, right? You slow down. You listen. You take a breath. You wait patiently. And then in that stillness or in that waiting, the soul, like a wild animal, might show up. You might come in contact with this deep inner part of yourself. But that discipline, that discipline of waiting, of slowing down, is not so much a part of modern life, in my experience. In fact, as Thomas Merton says, the whole mechanism of modern life is geared for a flight from God. And so this leaves our spirits, our souls, hungry for something more. And honestly, honestly, I think that's why you're here. You tell me that's why you're here. Those of you that come regularly or are here for the first time, you say something happened on Sunday, and afterwards I talked to my partner. We were, we were taking that apart. There was a stillness. We had a moment together. Something important came up. We were able to pause and breathe and slow down. And I will tell you, one hour a Sunday of that slowing down is a great start. It's a great start, but there's 168 hours in a week. One over 168. That's a tiny percentage, right? It's like almost half a percent. Let me pause for just a minute, because I've been using the word soul a lot, and I imagine some of you might have some questions about that. Maybe you're wondering, soul? Does the soul really exist? Or maybe you heard me say the soul can grow. This uh, tending to our inner lives can help the soul grow. And your question is, can the soul really grow? Really? Can you grow a soul? So let me tell you where I stand on these. And then let me point us all to some words from the poet Mary Oliver, because poets say it best. Yes, I do believe in the soul. And yes, I do believe it can grow. And here's what Mary Oliver says. The first wildest and wisest thing I know is that the soul exists and it is made entirely of attention. The first wildest and wisest thing I know is that the soul exists and it is made entirely of attention. That's Mary Oliver. The soul exists, she says, and it is made It is grown by paying attention. I believe this. I believe this deeply. And I'll tell you what, there are many others in our own faith tradition that believe this as well. And so if all of us here this morning jumped into a time machine and went back about 200 years into New England, we'd land with our Unitarian Transcendentalist ancestors. We'd land there and we would see them and hear them echoing this same idea that you can grow your soul by paying attention, by slowing down, by reflecting on your life, by listening to your life, looking for the movement of love of of God in your life and seeing your life in new ways. You can cultivate, you can grow your soul, your inner life, by paying attention. 
These men and women we'd find after we hopped off the time machine, they would be Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau and William Ellery Channing. Margaret Fuller would be among them. And they would say, yeah, you, you can engage in this spiritual practice, this, this way of intentionally looking at yourself and your life. You can listen and reflect and talk to other people and grow your spiritual center. You can do that. They believed, in essence, that you could grow your soul, but it took work, hard work. It took discipline and practice. So imagine we went back 200 years. We saw these Unitarian Transcendentalists. We had a sense of, in our own tradition, there was this self-reflective practice, this time to slow down and pay attention to interactions you had during the week, to moments where something happened, like When I sat down with my spiritual director and he helped me see that moment differently, that kind of reflection can open us, can expand us, can grow our souls. So we would visit our friends from 200 years ago and come back to this moment right now, and what we would know is that there are practices and disciplines we can engage in that help us, that give us some tools in this culture that is geared for this flight from God. There are ways that we can be that ground us. And so what I want to tell you this morning is one of those ways we have in this church is our small group ministry program. That is a place we practice growing our souls. I want you to know that since we first launched our small group ministry program, we have had 800 people participate in these small groups. In our small groups, you make big connections, and more often than not, you have a religious experience. In this small group of deep listening and reflection, you have a religious experience. And now I really imagine, if if you had questions about soul, some of you may have questions about religious experience, right? Because when I ask people the question, are you you religious or are you spiritual? Like, I'll just ask that right now. Like, would you say, put your hand up if you call yourself religious. Okay. A couple, okay, cool. And are you spiritual, right? Like, totally. Like, that's what you say to me. I talk to you about the, I, you know, after the service and other times you're like, oh, yeah, I'm really spiritual, but not really that religious. <laughs> I get it. I mean, we've had, we've had the Catholic Church in the last couple of decades has been this sort of epic uh, disaster of what religious institutions can do to people. And I have Catholic, dear, dear Catholic friends, but we see those things. Some of you come out of that tradition. And it's dear to you, and there's much, much, much of value. But we look at the institution, and we think, wow, that's what religion is about. It's about institutions. It's about systematizing and objectifying and saying, this is who is in, and this is who is out. Like, I don't really want to have anything to do with religion, thank you very much. I'm much more spiritual <laughs> than religious. And I'm borrowing here from a lot of the work that Diana Butler Bass has done looking at this. But she reminds us, in some of her work, she reminds us that even though to our modern sensibilities we hear the word religion, we hear about religious institutions, and we say, that's not for me, thank you, I'm spiritual but not religious, she reminds us that religion, when you take apart that word, has a different meaning than we associate with it. When you take apart that word, religion, you land at the root religio. And modern scholars, hang with me here on this part. This is really critical for what we're about as a, as a church here. Modern scholars argue that that word religio itself comes to us from the word legere. Okay, this is the Latin word, legere, which is the same root word for ligament. All right? What do ligaments do? They, they connect 
things. They hold things together. They bind things together. So when you look at religion, like re legere, to to reconnect, to, to connect together, to bind together, like a ligament, to bind together, then that helps us understand that religion, the heart of that word, is about opening our souls to other people, to the creation, and having this experience of being reconnected, feeling ourselves held in a love that will not let us go, sensing an underlying unity. Religion, with that understanding, is not about a a stale set of beliefs that says, okay, these people are in, these people are out, like, here's what you need to do to protect the institution, here's all these other things. Rather, it is about an experience of being connected, reconnected to something bigger than your own self. So that's what I'm talking about when I say in a small group you'll have a religious experience. Are you with me? All right. I know we've, we've covered a lot of ground here. We started, we started with modern life geared toward fleeing from God. We visited our transcendentalist, like brothers and sisters, 200 years ago, this sense of spiritual practice, self-cultivation, growing the inner life. I'm telling you, small groups are the place where we do that as a corporate body, where we can land with 8 to 10 other people and take on that spiritual practice. In those small groups, we can have big connections, religious experiences feel bound up and connected to something bigger than ourselves. It might be simply an experience of seeing the scattered pieces of your life come together in a new way. It might be an experience of seeing how God or love or whatever you want to call it is moving in your life in new ways. Just like that visit with my spiritual director where he heard that story and then asked one simple question. That, too, can happen in a small group when someone asks a question or reflects back to you what they heard. Here's how our small groups work at church. Each small group is made up of eight to ten people. They meet every other week for an hour and a half. They are led by a trained facilitator who helps create a safe place for the soul to show up. The content for each of these small groups comes from the Sunday morning sermon. The sermons Jen and I and others will preach, we will take questions from those sermons and land those in the small Groups. Each group has the same questions that are in invitations to reflect and examine your life. And then there's a chance in that group to share your story, your faith journey. Small groups are a spiritual practice of listening deeply to yourself and to others in that larger love. They're not a place for debate. They're not a place where someone starts to tell a story and you say, oh yeah, that's cool, but listen to this story about the time when I... And then you come over the top and tell the big story. Remember what Parker Palmer said, the soul is this savvy, resilient, wild animal, but it hides. And if, if there's a fierce debate going on, like I don't think the soul will show up. Small groups are not about debates, they're about listening. Listening, And I, I want to share this with you. Um, this is a little morsel in the stream of this sermon. This is a little morsel. One of my favorite writers, Rachel Naomi Remen, she says, one of the most important gifts that we can ever give another person is our attention. To just be present to another person. To hear their stories, their grief, their sadness, their joys. To just be 
present. That is one of the most important things we can give another person, our attention, that kind of listening. And as one of the 800 people who participated in our small groups, as, as this person said, in a small group, I can truly listen with my heart and speak from my heart and be heard. My experience in a small group changes and shapes me. I'm a different person because of this small group. So I want you to know we're offering 25 small groups this fall. Most will meet for uh, six sessions, an hour and a half each session. Some will meet for 12. So you can essentially, if you're thinking of your spiritual practices this Sunday, so one hour out of those 168 hours in a week, you could double your spiritual practice (laughs) by joining a small group. If you're interested, if you're interested. Many of our small groups will bring people together who are in a similar season in their life, who have a set of shared experiences. So that means there's a small group for people in their 20s and 30s, a small group for parents that are, that are raising teenagers, a small group for singles who are over 30, a small group for men. I'll be leading a small group for men who are fathers with young children. I have a, my wife and I have a three and a half your old son, and I think there's something about men parenting and in in reflecting on their faith journey through that lens that will be incredibly powerful. There's a group uh, for gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people. There are two small groups for parents with young children. There's a group for people who are new to this church, and there's a group for people who are interested in facilitating a small group later on, because I know some of you are. That's your ministry, your calling. And there's a group for people who are experiencing family estrangement. There's a whole bunch of small groups. In addition to all those, they're just for everyone. You pick the group that feeds you. You pick the time that feeds you. There's child care offered for these groups, and there's a whole bunch of different groups. You can sign up today downstairs or online on the website this week. So I'm imagining a couple of things. I'm imagining some of you are really ready to sign up. You're excited. You're just going to make a beeline down to the the hub. You're going to go online. You're going to just get signed up. You know the group. You're like, yep, parents of young children, I'm in. Or uh, 20s and 30s, I'm in that group, whatever it is. And there might be some of you who are uh, feeling some doubts, feeling like, I'm not sure this is the thing for me. And it might not the thing for you. There are lots of other ways you can slow down. You can tend to your spirit in this church. Many of them are outlined in the program guide that you can pick up on your way out the door. And if some of you are still in that place of being uncertain, thinking, maybe I'll try this, or I don't know, it feels like a big risk, here's what I want you to remember. Here's what I want to come back to. This quote from Thomas Merton that we all sort of are sitting with right now. The whole mechanism of modern life is geared for a flight from God. The whole mechanism, the whole setup, is geared for a flight away from what matters most in our lives. So being in a small group is a way to stop fleeing. Being in a small group is a way to slow down and stop. And if it's not a small group, there's lots of other places you can slow down, you can stop fleeing. And yes, friends, it is countercultural to slow down, right? It is ridiculously countercultural to slow down. It is hard to slow down. It is hard to attend to the inner life. But when we stop running away from a God that is madly in love with us, 
when we stop running away from our own inner lives, when we look to our transcendentalist brothers and sisters and say, there's a discipline here, there's a way to reflect on how I'm living and what I'm seeing to cultivate my spirit, when we stop running away from a God that is madly in love with us and grow our souls, something remarkable can can happen. When we stop running, running away from a God that is madly in love with us, we can heal. We can grow our inner life and we can become ever more fully loves people in this world. That is my hope and my prayer that we might stop running so furiously and fast away from a God that is madly in love with us, from those things that matter most. And as we cease that running, we begin to heal. We begin to heal ourselves and the world, and we ever more fully grow into love's people. May it be so. And amen.